Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to start um, here in the book of Galatians. I'm going to read the first five verses, and so if you'll follow with me as we introduce this book. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our, Fa- our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We pray. Father, we ask that as we look at this word that Paul wrote by the superintendents of the Holy Spirit to the churches in Galatia for the defense of the gospel of your free grace in Christ by your spirit received through faith. We pray that as we look at this letter over the next several weeks, as we consider your word in Paul's introduction today, pray, Father, that your spirit would be at work turning on the the lights in our dark minds, that you would help us to understand your word, to rejoice in your word, to repent where we need to, to remember that we are under the authority of your word, that we do not judge your word, but your word judges us. We pray that we would understand the gospel, that we would be as vigorous as Paul in the defense of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. That we would want to see your name exalted through the preaching of and defense of the gospel. We pray that you would work in us to change our lives through this letter you wrote to Galatia. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever we read a letter, we know that one of the things about reading a letter is that context matters. Context matters whenever you're reading a letter. In order to read a letter well, I need to know who the author is. And roughly, when the letter was written, and to whom the letter was written, and what the occasion of the letter was. For example, if I write a love letter to my wife on her anniversary, the context is much different than if I write a letter of condolences to a friend on the occasion of a loved one's death. If I don't know who the author is, who the audience is, when it's being written, and what the occasion of the writing are... I don't understand the letter. I don't quite grasp it. And the same holds true whenever we read one of Paul's letters. Paul wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. When you come out of Acts, although Luke was a follower of Paul, so Luke and Acts in some way are, are shaped by Paul as well, as is the Gospel of Mark. But as you, as you come out of Acts, you come into Romans, written by Paul. Then 1 Corinthians, written by Paul. 2 Corinthians, also written by Paul. Then you come into Galatians and Ephesians and Philipp- or Colossians and Philippians. You come into First and Second Thessalonians and First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon, all written by Paul. Some scholars argue over whether Hebrews was written by Paul. Paul has a major influence in the shaping of the New Testament and the writing of letters, and his letters are all quite different. They address different audiences, same author different audiences, and they're written on different occasions for different purposes. 
And so when we come to a letter like Galatians, we want to understand why is Paul writing this letter? But first, maybe we ask the question, who is Paul? Look at the first word of the letter here, Paul. And then he identifies himself, an apostle. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, who's him, Jesus Christ. The Father raised him from the dead. And then the second part of the person writing, the authors, and all the brothers who are with me. So here's the author, Paul, an apostle called by Jesus and all the brothers who are with me. So who is Paul? Well, Paul was originally known as Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was there actually overseeing and approving of the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. So, so we can get a little context for Paul, look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse, keep your hands in Galatians 1 and look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul, that's the one who becomes Paul, verse 1 of Acts 8, and Saul approved of his execution. That's speaking of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was a jealous Jewish Pharisee. He was intent on persecuting, arresting, putting to death if necessary, imprisoning Christians. That's who he was. But we learn about his conversion in the book of Acts as well. Go to Acts chapter 9. Chapter nine. Acts chapter 9. Because Saul is converted here. Acts chapter 9. He's converted to Christianity. What's interesting about his conversion, it's different than yours. It's different than mine. No one in here had the resurrected Christ appear to them and preach the gospel to them. This happens to Paul. If that happened to you, then see me afterwards and we'll set you up for sessions with Jason for counseling. Okay? But here's Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is what they would refer to as the Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, or Ananias, sorry. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias 
answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. You can hear Ananias' concern. That guy puts people in jail and gets them killed. Why do I want to go see him? And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came here, or by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So Saul is the persecutor of the church who is then converted to Christianity through an appearance of the resurrected Christ. And then he's blinded after that scene, and he is praying, and Ananias is sent to remove the scales from his eyes and to baptize him as a Christian. And he was called, as we see in chapter 9, verse 15, he was called to actually preach the gospel to Gentiles. Not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. He was called to preach the gospel to them. And he was brought by Barnabas to pastor the church of Antioch. Now, I want you to see this. If you don't know who Barnabas is, Barnabas is one of um, the men of the church. He hangs out with the apostles. He's called the, Barnabas because he's the son of encouragement. He sold everything he had and doled out his stuff to the poor so that everyone might be cared for. You see about, read about him in Acts really um, 4 and 5. But Barnabas, he comes to Barnabas and shows himself to Barnabas. And Barnabas embraces Paul and brings Paul before the apostles and approves of Paul and they all approve of Paul and then eventually Barnabas needs help pastoring the church in Antioch so you're fast forwarding like 10 or 11 years now and Barnabas needs help pastoring the church at Antioch this Gentile church that had arisen and so Barnabas walks about a hundred miles to Tarsus and gets Paul goes and searches for him and gets him and brings him back to help him be a pastor of this church look at Acts 11 and verse 19 Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's Greek speakers, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That means followers of Christ. That's why it's funny to me when somebody says, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. That's what Christian means. Anyway, so. now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Um, and eventually Barnabas and Saul or Paul help address some of that famine. So Paul 
is picked up by Barnabas to come pastor the church in Antioch. So imagine this. You start off with this guy who's persecuting the Christians, who's overseeing their execution, who's helping them get arrested. You say helping them. You know what I'm saying. Putting them in prison. And he comes to Christ when Jesus comes to him resurrected and calls him to him. And he's baptized and he becomes a Christian and he goes out preaching and he becomes friends with the apostles whom he was persecuting because of this guy Barnabas who came alongside of him. And over time, over about 10 years, eventually there's a church growing at Antioch with both Jews and Gentiles. And Barnabas says, I need help pastoring this church at Antioch. I need help teaching these people. So I'm going to go get Saul. I'm going to come have him help me teach and pastor this church. And so for a year they spend teaching. By the way, that's multiple hours a day, every day for a year, right? It's not like um, here where, you know, we meet once on Sunday, maybe twice on Sunday if we're super religious, and then if we're really into it, we go Wednesday night too, and you guys know what I'm talking about? For most of the history of the church, they met every single day. Early church, every single day, go read Acts 2. Here, every single day. If you go into the Reformation period, um, you can read the Reformers meeting every single day. They preached every day. Luther, Calvin, every day of the week. And that was the normal pattern. So Paul is participating in that with Barnabas as they're preaching every day, teaching the church at Antioch. And then something happens in the church at Antioch. Look at Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, he's going to list some of them. Barnabas, Simeon who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul or Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Now what was the work to which he'd called them? To preach the gospel among the Gentiles. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Paul is now not only a pastor at Antioch, but he's being sent out as a missionary. A missionary evangelist to plant churches among unreached people groups. That's what Paul was. He's going to go to unreached people groups, people who have never heard of Jesus, Gentile people groups, and preach the gospel to them. And Barnabas is going with them. And they're sent out by the church at Antioch. There, if you will, this is the first scene we really have in the Bible where where men are actually sent out as missionaries by a local church. And here they go. And in Acts 13 and 14, which I'm not going to read all of, you have the account in which Paul and Barnabas go into southern Galatia. The cities of southern Galatia. Galatia is a region. There's northern and southern Galatia. But in Acts 13 and 14, they go into the cities and the region of southern Galatia. That's, and, and they start preaching the gospel and planting churches. The book of Galatians, so you understand where it takes place. It takes place, the whole book, when he goes there, if you look, go to, back to Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not from man, men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father raised him from the dead, and all the brothers were with me, to the churches of Galatia. Most of the time, Paul will say, to the church in Ephesus, right? Singular, the church. To the church in Colossae, singular, church. Here you have a region called Galatia, and he's preaching to churches in multiple cities. This letter is going to churches in multiple cities in Galatia. So he says, to the churches in Galatia. It's not just one city, but a whole region. 
And this letter, I would argue, is being written really during Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas have gone off and uh, planted these churches. And now they're writing this letter to their churches because a problem has arisen. But Paul isn't the only author here. So when I notice that Paul is an author and I talk about the fact that he's not an apostle from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ, he's not the only author. He also says, and all the brothers who are with me. The brothers who are with me may not be a reference just to Barnabas, but it also might, and fellow missionaries, but also might refer to the church in Antioch. In other words, it's possible, scholars argue, that when Paul's writing this letter, he's saying, this is from me who planted your church and the missionaries with me, but he's also pointing back to, and your mother church, Antioch, you know, the one that sent us out to plant? It's also from them. And there are scholars that argue about that. It may be. This is probably the earliest letter that Paul wrote. Of all of Paul's letters, Galatians is probably the earliest one, maybe written around 48 A.D., 49 A.D., right in that time period. Um, it's written before Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. So this letter is written before that. So this is the timing of it. And that council that meets in Acts 15 actually takes up the same problem that Paul is addressing here to the churches of Galatia. So when you read Acts 15, there's a whole problem being addressed there at the Jerusalem church council. That is the same problem that Paul's addressing in the letter to the Galatian churches. So what was the occasion of the problem that Paul was writing about? Look look at the occasion. Verse 6. Verse 6. I am of Galatians 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Do you hear what's happening? The occasion of the letter is, I've planted those churches. I'm the one who planted you. And these other missionaries with me, we planted your churches. We were sent by the church in Antioch to plant your churches. You remember you heard the gospel from us. And now we're getting reports that you're abandoning the gospel, that you're deserting the gospel that we, we taught you, that we preached to you, that is your salvation. What are you doing? So he's writing, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting this gospel. You're deserting Jesus when you desert the gospel. He goes on, we get a little more context for it. Look at Galatians chapter 5. So you get a little more context for this desertion of the gospel, which we're going to spend a lot of time on, incidentally. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that there are men called Judaizers who are professing Christians who've come into the church and said to Gentiles, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. Grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone is not enough. You have to add your own good works. And the good work you need to add is you need to be circumcised. You males need to be circumcised under the law of Moses, just like we were as Jews. Or else you cannot be saved. And so he says, these people are, Christ has set you free. They're trying to put you back into a yoke of slavery under the law. Look, I, Paul, verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. See, once you add your own good works, once you add your own self-righteousness to the equation, Christ is of no value to you anymore. He's either all of your salvation or none of your salvation, but he's never part of it. 
He's never just a portion. He is your righteousness and your justification and your sanctification. Or he's nothing to you. But he isn't an add-on to your good works. If you accept Christ or circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, you want to be perfected that way? Then you better not ever disobey one commandment of God. Good luck with that one. And then he goes on. He actually gets so frustrated with those who are calling from circumcision. Look at verse 12 of Galatians 5. I wish those who unsettle you, who are telling you to be circumcised, would, would emasculate themselves. So it's a kind word, isn't it? While they're down there circumcising, I wish they'd go the whole way and just cut it off. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? How can Paul have such strong language? He's so jealous for this gospel message. Now, to see that this is the same problem as happening in Acts 15, keep your hand in Galatians 1 and just look really quickly, or, or at least listen to me read Acts 15 and verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hear that? Same problem. In other words, Jesus isn't enough. He's not sufficient. You've got to add on the law of Moses. You've got to be good enough yourself. And there, that's the same problem that's going on in Galatia. It's a desertion of the gospel. And Paul's approach to, a dealing, his approach to dealing with this error is really to give a three, threefold defense of the gospel. So if you will, I would break Galatians down into a threefold defense of the gospel. Um, and that's what I want to just give you really quickly as an outline. And then we'll go back through that outline over the next several weeks as we walk through the letter. But here's the outline is a threefold defense of the gospel. And he defends first his apostolic office. He first defends his apostolic office. Then he defends the gospel of God's free grace and salvation. And he defends God's glory and salvation. That's the threefold defense. His apostolic office, the gospel of God's free grace and salvation, and God's glory and salvation. Those are the things Paul defends. So let's look at um, this threefold defense even here in the first few verses. Notice first his defense of his apostolic office. Look at verse 1 of Galatians 1 again. Paul, an apostle, not from men. In other words, he's getting at the authority for his ministry. When I write to you, I better tell you what my authority is, right? I need to identify myself. If I write to my wife, I, I'm identifying myself as her husband. I don't, I don't have to say I'm your husband. She knows that. But when I use my name, she's, I, she knows that's my husband. In, in this case, there's a lot of Pauls out there. Paul's saying, I, this is Paul, an apostle. I'm an apostle. I'm identifying my authority the authority I have in ministry, my office. And so he's defending his apostolic office right off by saying this, it's, I'm not an apostle from men, nor through man. This isn't because the church saw me and thought, man, you're a good speaker, Paul. You're really smart. We're going to make you an apostle. No men made me an apostle is what Paul's saying. I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. To the churches of Galatia. In other words, Paul's writing these churches he planted. He planted these churches. 
And he's defending his apostolic office. He's telling them, I'm an apostle. Now, the word apostle could just mean sent one. You guys know that in the Greek? Could just mean sent one. But he wants them to say, no, I'm using this in a more official sense. He's using the sense of the original 12 apostles. There are 12 apostles plus Paul. The apostles who gave us the Bible. The apostles who ceased to be. That we have no more of. He's identifying himself as one of those apostles. He's saying he's one who saw the resurrected Christ. He is appointed by Jesus Christ and the Father to be an apostle. He's not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. In other words, he's set apart as an apostle by God, and therefore he is a part, Ephesians 2.20, of the foundation of the church. So Paul's saying to himself, I'm part of the foundation of the church. And he performed the signs of a true apostle through miracles and signs and mighty wonders as he identifies them in 2 Corinthians 12. Further, he's with the brothers. He's making an appeal to other Christian brothers, saying, it's not just me saying this, other Christian brothers. And Paul continues this defense of his apostolic ministry all the way through Galatians 1 and Galatians 2. And he gives us quite a bit of autobiographical detail. So if you will, the first two chapters of the letter to Galatians is Paul's defense of his apostolic office. The question is, why does he take time to defend his office as an apostle? So you've got, you got to ask that question. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm reading my Bible, I just want to wrestle with Paul sometimes. Why do you tell me that? Why do I need to know that? You're defending the gospel. Why do I need two chapters on how you're a real apostle? Why not just get to the gospel? Why do I need that? Because Paul's gospel message, which Jesus sent him to preach, is being challenged The Judaizers are challenging Paul's gospel message, and Paul wants them to realize that he's an apostle, and he and his message, therefore, are from Christ. In other words, Paul's message comes from an authoritative ministry, which he's been entrusted with by the Lord. In that period, Paul needed to distinguish between a true apostle and a false apostle, because there were all these men running around calling themselves super apostles, and he wants to identify his credentials and say, listen, I'm the true deal. I'm the real deal. I'm an apostle sent by Christ. What I say is true. He's establishing his authority to even lay out the message. So how does that carry over today? Well, we recognize a true messenger of Jesus today by seeing one who upholds the, po- the apostle's doctrine. What's the apostle's doctrine? It's what we find here in the Bible. The church in Acts 2 commits themselves day and night to what? The apostles' doctrine. They meet together every day. And they hear, they learn the apostles' doctrine. Because the apostles are the foundation of the church. If you, it, yes, a man needs to be set apart for his church, by his church and ordained to public ministry by his church. But if that man fails to teach the apostles' doctrine, the gospel is found in the Bible, and that man is not a messenger of Christ. Does hear that? If he's not preaching the apostles' doctrine, he's not a messenger of Christ. That's how it carries over today. We don't have any new apostles. If somebody tells you they're an apostle, run away really fast. This is it. Here's their doctrine. If a man does not teach this, he's not one of Christ's messengers. And Paul wants to be clear. I'm one of Christ's messengers. I'm an apostle sent by him. You have to believe my message. And the way that carries over today is we believe what they wrote down. We teach what they wrote down. That's why the principle which I taught five weeks or six weeks ago now 
Sola Scriptura is so important to the church. Scripture alone, as our authority. It is by Scripture which gives us the apostles' doctrine, or excuse me, it is the Scripture which gives us the apostles' doctrine, which they were sent by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to write down. So for Paul to defend his own apostolic office is not ultimately a self-defense. See, Paul isn't interested in them just liking him at the end of this. It's not ultimately a self-defense. For Paul, it's to defend the authority of the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God about Jesus and the gospel that he's been preaching. So that moves us to the second part of Paul's defense. So what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks in the first two chapters, really, is a defense of Paul's apostolic office. Second part of Paul's defense is the defense of the gospel of free grace. Really, if the first one is about the authority of his ministry, this defense is about the heart of his ministry. What his ministry really is about. Look at verse 3 of Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, we see this greeting and probably just read over it really quickly. Like, oh, that's a nice greeting, Paul. Very nice. Thank you. We don't stop and consider what he just said. Grace to you. It's probably the most glorious thing that can, or blessing that can be just said to you. So it's a bless you, grace to you. God's unmerited favor to you. Grace to you and peace. And where does that grace and peace come? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The unmerited favor of God leads to peace with God, which speaks of our reconciliation and the corresponding experience of peace we have. You see, we're not at peace with God in our natural state. We're at enmity with God in our natural state. We're his enemies. We're by nature children of wrath, Paul says in Ephesians 2. So how do we come under God's favor? Not because of anything in us. Because of who he is. He is God and he's gracious. And so he pours out his unmerited favor on us in Christ and through Christ's work reconciles us to himself so that we now have peace with God objectively and peace internally, subjectively. We're now at rest in him. And so Paul's starting his defense of the gospel. Now how did God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ show us this unmerited favor and bring us peace? Look at verse 4. Now notice, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself. Now, who is speaking of Jesus? Jesus, the Messiah, gave himself for our sins. Notice that phrase, though, because I just want to stop down. Stop there real quick and just slow down. Who gave himself? Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord. The Messiah, Jesus. Who gave himself. This is a gift far greater than any other gift of creation or providence, isn't it? No matter how good providence is for you. In other words, the daily outflowing of your event, of your life at the hand of God, no matter how good or glorious we think creation is, the gift of himself is greater than any of it. For until this point, the Lord 
has given us life and breath and beauty and marriage and family and friends and created things. But now Jesus gave himself. We get him. We don't just get his stuff. We get him. Not just the created things, but the creator. Every other gift, every gift in all of creation is a pale shadow of the gift of the giver himself. So that C.S. Lewis could say this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. See, all the gifts in creation just picture for you what is yours in him. They're just a small taste. And our problem is We end up forgetting that and worshiping those things rather than the giver himself. But he gave himself. Let's not drive, though, a wedge between the Father and the Son in this giving. How does the Father give us grace and peace? Look at verse 4 because you say, well, Jesus gave us grace and peace by giving himself. But how does the Father do it? Verse 4, who gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age, and uh, for our sins, deliver us from the present evil age. I'll get back to that. According to, notice this, he gave himself according to the will of who? Our God and Father. See, Jesus gave himself because the Father willed that he would. Prior to the foundation of the world, the Father covenanted with the Son to give him a people and a kingdom. And the Son came to, came to give himself for that people and to receive his kingdom. Let's not imagine that Jesus loves us and the Father doesn't. The Father willed this. I know it's easy for us to get in this sense in which the Father is this sort of angry guy in the Old Testament and Jesus is this loving guy in the New Testament. That is not true. That's perverse. Jesus came because the Father sent him. Here in his love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation, a wrath bearer for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Who gave Jesus? The Father. Why did Jesus come and give himself? Because he wanted to, yes, but in obedience to the will of the Father who sent him. So we have grace to us and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ because the Father willed to send him and because Jesus willed to come and give himself. And there's two reasons that Christ gave himself by the will of the Father. Two reasons the Father sent Jesus to give himself and they're listed there. Notice what he says. For who gave himself for our sins. It's like sometimes you just want to slow down on these words. For our sins. He gave himself for our sins. That first reason is to pay the penalty for our sins. This is talking about substitutionary atonement. Do you know what that is? 
means God's wrath needs to be satisfied. His justice needs to be satisfied against those who violated his law. That's us. That's us. And what this says is when Jesus gave himself for our sins, Jesus went to the cross and Jesus put himself in our place and God's wrath, his justice, was satisfied on Jesus instead of us. We deserved it. We're the ones who sinned, not Jesus. He was perfect, holy, undefiled, spotless, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He deserved no wrath, no justice, only what? Vindication. The declaration that he is in fact holy. Whereas we, we are sinful, defiled, ungodly, unrighteous. No one seeks for God. No, not one. No one is good. No one is righteous. No, not one. Together they become worthless. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They're by nature children of wrath. They follow after the prince of the air. These are the descriptions of us in the Bible. They're not good, are they? We're the ones who deserve God's wrath and justice. But Jesus substituted himself for us and took God's wrath upon himself. He gave himself for our sins. This means that Jesus has taken the penalty for your sin upon himself. He freed you from the penalty due to you for the violation, for your violation of the law. If you don't understand, listen, I I want you to get a hold of this. If you don't understand that your contribution to this is only your sin, it's all you bring to the table. In your reconciliation with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit, what do you bring to the table? Your sin. That's it. That's your contribution. It's not your cleaned up life. Well, I'll get to him when I clean up my life. You bring your sin, your ungodliness, your unrighteousness. He brings everything that's good. If you don't understand that, you'll end up with a false gospel. You will. You'll end up with a gospel in which you contribute something to your salvation and Jesus will be of no value to you. And further, he did not just give himself for their sins, but for yours too. See, it isn't enough just to believe that Jesus came in history and gave himself for sin in history. But you must trust that he gave himself for your sins. I I want you to hear that, Christians. I want you to hear that, He gave himself for your sins. This isn't intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus did something in history that doesn't apply to you. This is believing Jesus did something in history for you. For your sins. And it's absorbing that and responding to that appropriately in faith, repentance, sorrow for sin, joy, thanksgiving. You need to rest in him and receive him and trust in him. He absorbed the Father's wrath against your sin at the cross. You need to come to an end of your own good works and your own personal worthiness and realize you brought your only your sin and the penalty for sin to the table and Jesus brought everything good and took your penalty upon himself. But he did not only come to give himself to free you from the penalty of your sin. That's not where Paul stops. Notice what he says. Who gave himself for our sins. And if that's not enough, 
He doesn't just remove the penalty for your sin to deliver us. Look at that phrase. To deliver us from the present evil age. He came to free us not just from the penalty of our sin, but from the power of sin over us. To deliver us from the present evil age. Paul does not mean we're removed from this planet. Okay, that would be nice. Easy. It's not what he's talking about. He means we're, we're a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. When you come to Christ, you're united to him through faith by the Holy Spirit. You receive all Christ's benefits by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He takes away the penalty of your sin, thus giving you a new legal status. And he breaks the power of sin in your life, thus giving you a new moral or spiritual ability. You're freed from slavery under the law, from slavery to sin. The question is, what are you freed to? So you're freed from slavery to sin, but what are you freed to? You're freed to live in holiness and godliness, an ability you lacked before. You're freed to keep the law, an ability you lacked before. Now by that, I don't mean keeping the law as a cruel taskmaster that's waiting to punish you in every failure. You guys probably, some of you probably keep the law that way. That the, the law is some kind of mocker of your inability to earn the Father's favor. But you're free to keep the law as a gracious guide given by your Father who's already shown you great favor freely in Christ. Thus, as an adopted son of the Father, as a new creation, as a born-again Christian, you no longer live for this world and its desires, the desires of the world and the flesh and the devil which all lead to death. Now you live for Christ and the world to come, which is already yours. You do this by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. Paul presses into that teaching. So if you will, he presses into the teaching of the gospel of free grace in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians and some of chapter 5. And then in 5 and 6, he presses into this idea that you've been delivered from your sins, not only from the penalty of your sins, but from the power of your sins. And now you can live in the freedom of a spirit-filled life in faith in Jesus. You can live in that now. And he drives after reminding you, you did not justify yourself by good works, and you will not. Listen to this. This is important. You didn't justify yourself by good works. Everybody goes, yeah, amen. I did not get forgiven from my sins by good works. Everybody agree with that? Amen, right? I did not become declared righteous by anything good in me, but by only by Jesus. Everybody agrees with that? Yes, okay, that's great. I got the legal part. But you're not sanctified by your good works either. Did you hear that? What? You don't grow in personal holiness day to day by your good works. You do not. Say, are you an antinomian? Do you not believe in the law? No, I believe in the law. You do not grow in holiness by your good works. You hear me say that? Say, well, I got in the door of Christianity by Jesus, but I, I grow in holiness out of my own good works, right? No. Do you put forth effort in holiness? Yes. Do you strive after holiness? Yes. Do you read your Bible to grow in holiness? Yes. Do you sit in the preached word to grow in holiness? Yes. Participate in the sacraments for holiness? Yes. So you might grow in holiness. All of that stuff. But you do not grow in sanctification by your good works. Yes, you will do good works, but those works, now listen, those good works are the outcome 
of the powerful working of the Spirit as you walk by faith in Christ. Those works do not sanctify you. Those works are the fruit of the Spirit as He sanctifies you while you're trusting in Jesus. Do you guys hear that? Good works are fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith in Christ. Good works are the fruit and evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Good works are not the way you get Him to work in your life. They come as a result of him working in your life. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? He's the one who does it in you. When Paul picks up the theme of godly living in chapters 5 and 6, he discusses the freedom we have in Christ and how our faith expresses itself in love and how we walk by the Spirit and how we boast only in Christ. And if we fail to understand what Paul is doing in chapters 1 through 4, we will pervert what he's doing in chapters 5 and 6. Because his entire ethical section in chapters 5 and 6 is grounded in our justification, in our deliverance from this present evil age, in our adoption as sons, and our living through faith in Christ by the work of the Spirit according to the will of the Father. So let me take the good news one step further before we conclude. We're not only freed from the penalty of our sin and from the power of our sin, we will also one day be removed from the presence of sin. Hear that? One day be removed from the present. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, but you're not yet experiencing that fully. When you believe in Christ, you have eternal life, and Jesus says you will never die. But he doesn't mean physically. You will die physically unless he returns before then. You may face physical death, but you've been spiritually resurrected. And when your eyes close in death, I just did a funeral this week. The funeral of my wife's grandma. She was a believer in Christ. Probably the best, um, most faithful death I've ever personally seen. Here's a lady. She's 92. She wanted us to sing hymns and read scripture and pray. And when she was laying there, as much as she was suffering, she was singing about Christ's love for her. And she was told she's going to die that night. It was, uh, she was told it was a Monday night. She told, you're going to die tonight. And she's like, okay. And she was happy about that. She went to sleep. She woke up the next morning expecting to be dead. She woke up and she goes, why is this taking so long? (laughs) I thought I'd be dead already. She went home to be with the Lord. And I told the family at the funeral that when her eyes closed in death, they opened to see the glory of Christ. That's what we look forward to. Christ has taken the penalty from us. He's broken the power of sin in our lives. And one day he'll remove us from the presence of sin. And we look forward to that glorious day. That day, really, when Christ returns and our bodies are resurrected as well. Jesus did all of that. The good news is that God saved you in Christ and it's all of grace. What did you contribute to any of this? So far, just your sin. You can say it out loud. You don't have to be timid about it. Just your what? Sin. Yeah, that's what you contributed. Jesus contributed everything else. Jesus is the Savior. And that's what Paul's about preaching. Preaching this message of the free grace of God in Christ by the Spirit, received through faith alone, is the heart of Paul's ministry because it's the message Jesus gave him. That's what he says in Acts 20-24 when he's writing to the Ephesian elders. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That leads to Paul's third defense, which this is very short. Because not really in the book as as explicitly, it's implied underneath this whole letter. And it's Paul's defense of the glory of God in salvation. If you will, if the first point was he's defending his apostolic office in, in Galatians 1 and 2 to establish the authority for his ministry and message. And then in Galatians 3, 4, 5, and 6 really, laying out um, the gospel of God's free grace in Christ, which is the heart of his ministry. Here, when he defends God's glory and salvation, he's talking about the goal of his ministry. What's his supreme goal? Look at verse 5 of Galatians 1. After he explains the gospel in short form, in a nutshell, in verse 5, he can't stop there. He has to go to worship to whom be glory, the glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, the gospel truth brings Paul to doxological or worship gratefulness. He comes to this worshipful thankfulness and gratefulness for the gospel. And when we hear the gospel, when we hear the gospel of our salvation, then we're brought to the point of worshiping God in joyful thanksgiving, living our daily lives for him by his spirit as a result of our union with Christ. And underlying all of Galatians is this deep sense for Paul and us, I think, anytime you talk about the gospel, this deep sense of God-centeredness. What do I mean by that? I mean the book shows us, this book and every book of the Bible, shows us that good theology always leads to proper doxology or worship. Good doctrine leads to proper worship. False doctrine leads to improper worship. When we fail to understand that Jesus is our justification, we will look to our own flesh to please God and so not properly honor the Son. When we fail to understand that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life as a new creation in Christ and adoption of the Son, that he's the only one who empowers godliness in us, then we do not properly rely upon the Spirit and give him the honor he deserves. When we fail to understand the Father has willed our justification and adoption as sons in Christ by his Spirit through faith, we fail to give the Father the honor due his name. In other words, when we fail to understand that the whole of our salvation is all of grace from the Father in the Son by the Holy Spirit, when we fail to understand that, we fail to exalt God. In this failure, our hearts and lives are not God-centered. Instead, we focus on the flesh, we focus on ourselves, we become man-centered. And what we get together to do is talk about principles for living. Yes, Paul is jealous for the gospel so that people will be saved. He does care about men. But supremely, preeminently, Paul is jealous for the glory of God and our salvation. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 5 that he received the grace of apostleship. He says this, to bring about the obedience of faith. That's believing in the gospel. Bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. That's his concern for people in every tribe and tongue and nations. For, here's his preeminent supreme concern, for the sake of his name. For the sake of Jesus' name. Paul worships the Lord for his great grace in Christ, and he wants the church to do the same. 
This is our prayer for sovereign grace as we walk through this letter to Galatia. We pray that sovereign grace will become a church in as much as we are not yet, will be more and more what we're called to be, a church who trusts wholeheartedly in and vigorously defends the gospel of the free grace of God and Jesus Christ for our own good, but supremely for God's glory. And we pray we will want to see God's glory not only spread among us, but throughout our city and throughout the nations who've never heard. That's our prayer. We want to see Jesus proclaimed. We want to see the favor of the Father, the free, unmerited grace of the Father proclaimed in Christ by the Spirit received through faith alone to the ends of the earth. That's why we exist as a church. That's our prayer as we go through this letter that we'll be continuously reminded of that. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to have a proper understanding of your gospel message and your son. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we would trust in your son Jesus and know he is our justification. He is our sanctification. He, he is everything for us. That you showed us free favor in him. Unmerited favor because you're gracious. We're thankful that he gave himself for our sins. And that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. We're thankful that Jesus took the penalty for our sins at the cross. That he broke the power of sin in our lives by making us a new creation in himself by the Spirit. And that he will one day return again to resurrect us and remove us from the presence of sin. This is our glorious hope. We pray that we would walk in it every day, leaning on, trusting on, relying on your son Jesus. Father, we pray for those who do not know him, those who are not looking to him in faith. We pray that you would turn them to him in faith, that they would believe and so be saved for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.